This is a Suno India production and you're listening to Science and Us. This podcast is made possible by a grant from the Thakur Family Foundation. Thakur Family Foundation has not exercised any editorial control over the contents of this podcast. It was just a little more than a year ago that the COVID-19 pandemic hit us out of the blue. Treatments against this new viral disease were unknown. Uncertainty was rampant. There were many questions, few answers. Yet today, we have several vaccines out in the world. We have Covishield developed by the Serum Institute of India and Covaxin developed by Bharat Biotech. And these have all come thanks to clinical trials which are research studies where a medication or vaccine is first tested in a group of people in a controlled setting before rolling it out to the general public and if we hadn't had clinical trials we wouldn't have had these vaccines and there would be no progress this is urmila thatte a clinical pharmacologist bioethicist and emeritus professor at the seth gs medical college and kem hospital in mumbai in the same way there would have been no treatments like Uh, people started using hydroxychloroquine people use anything but it doesn't mean that this is effective treatment without clinical research you can't answer questions research questions clinical trials tell us whether a medicine works or not whether that medicine for headache actually cures that headache or that medicine for high blood pressure actually reduces your blood pressure trials tell us the kinds of side effects you can expect They also tell us the kinds of patients the medicine might not work in. But while necessary to push science and evidence-based medicine forward, clinical trials in India haven't been without their considerable share of controversies. This past year alone, there were multiple allegations of ethical irregularities in how some of the COVID-19 clinical trials in India were designed and conducted. The DCGI had asked Serum Institute to now explain why an ongoing clinical trial of the Covishield vaccine was not stopped in India despite being halted in four countries. A Serum Institute of India has rejected claims made by a vaccine volunteer in Chennai uh, who claimed that he had developed health complications after being administered the Covishield vaccine. Several questions are being raised on whether a group of citizens in Bhopal were made a part of the trials of one of the Covid vaccines in India. without them properly knowing exactly what it was that they were getting into unethically designed and conducted trials are a gross violation of the well-being and rights of the very people who participate and make the study possible they also raise doubts about whether the data generated from the study are reliable or not and if the data can't be relied upon would you trust the claims made for the medicine Now there are several checks and balances in the Indian clinical trial rules and other guidelines that are meant to prevent these problems. One of these checks is in the form of a body called the Ethics Committee. Hi, I am Shreya Das Gupta and I am the host of this episode. In this episode we'll explore what this Ethics Committee is. What is their role? and if they are the local body entrusted with the power of overseeing a trial why do ethical violations keep cropping up in our country
when a sponsor say a pharmaceutical company or a government or non-government agency wants to initiate a clinical trial they need approval from two main bodies at the center is the indian drug regulator the drug controller general of india or the dcgi at a more local level at the level of the hospital or the area where the study is planned to be conducted it is the institutional or independent ethics committee that has that responsibility this committee must not only give its approval for the trial to go ahead but must also ensure that the research participants are protected and that the study is conducted ethically an ethics committee is quite central to all clinical trials because their responsibility is to ensure that uh, the participants well-being rights and uh, dignity is maintained and i always show my students a seesaw you know that when there is practice when people doctors are practicing clinically they are on top giving to the patient because they are the experts while when there is clinical research the patient is on top he is giving to the doctor knowledge information about what is happening in this clinical trial the patient is the god there is the boss and he is the one who should be respected the most now that we know why ethics committees are important let's first look at what an ethics committee is ideally expected to do to start with when a sponsor wants to initiate a trial the ethics committee must review a series of documents about the proposed study one of these is the trial protocol this has details on how the study has been designed and how the sponsor and principal investigator plan to carry it out there's also a document called the investigator's brochure which lays out all the information available on the medicine being tested from previous studies in labs animals and humans together these documents can tell the committee members if the study's design will yield trustworthy results they also tell them what kinds of side effects the medicine might have and the potential benefits one can expect when it is tested in a larger group of people for example if the data from an earlier trial show that people who were given a new cancer medicine suffered from severe hair fall frequent vomiting and stomach pain while not seeing any significant improvement in how long they live the ethics committee might rule that the risks outweigh the benefits and then they might reject plans for a bigger phase 3 trial Another important document the ethics committee reviews is the informed consent form. This form is the basis on which you and I can decide whether to enroll in the trial or not. So whenever we're looking at informed consent forms one of the things you have to look at is is enough context and enough information provided to the uh, potential participant and uh, is there enough detail for them to understand that they are participating in a research study? what kind of a research study who's conducting that study why is that study being conducted uh, what are the expectations from a potential participant what would happen to them um, in terms of their participation in the study what are potential known risks and benefits if something happens to them then who will take care of them will they be compensated in any way if they have any concerns about the study who can they contact um you know and for how long will the study be happening for and uh, also uh, they need to be told about uh, the possibility of contacting the ethics committee in case they have any concerns about the trial conduct that's anant bhan a bioethics and global public health researcher at yenepoya university in mangalore 
Bhan adds that the ethics committee should also ideally approve the plan of recruitment. That is, how do you plan on getting people to come and participate in the trial? Any uh, recruitment plans, any uh, recruitment flyers, advertisements, the process through which recruitment happens, all of that typically also needs to be approved by the ethics committee. And again, they are looking at are you, uh, you know, providing adequate context? Are you not over, um, you know, playing the benefits of the study? Are you, pro- uh, are you um, in any sense not providing adequate information for them to understand that this is about a study and what their rights might be? Are you, for example, over-focusing on potential benefits such as uh, any compensation being offered or any reimbursement being offered in the study? Uh, just to make sure that... Uh, those who are willing to participate are doing it in the interest of science and not necessarily being drawn by a particular incentive, etc. And also that you know um, you are not uh, you are explaining very clearly that this is research. Now, once the committee decides that all the documents from the protocol to the informed consent forms are all satisfactory, it can give the go-ahead for the trial. Sounds simple enough. So why do lapses occur then? A decade ago, several clinical trials in India were embroiled in controversy. This included a trial where tens of thousands of young girls were vaccinated against the human papilloma virus. This trial was reported to have several ethical and scientific lapses. Another set of trials, conducted between 2004 and 2008, involved patients at the Bhopal Hospital, which hosts victims of the gas tragedy. Again, they were seemingly recruited, often without their knowledge. In response to these problematic trials, the Indian drug regulator brought about a series of regulatory changes. Some of these changes aimed to strengthen the functioning of the ethics committees. For example, the new drugs and clinical trial rules of 2019 have made it compulsory for all ethics committees that oversee regulatory trials to register with the Central Drugs Standard Control Organization or the CDSCO, which is headed by the DCGI. More than 1,200 ethics committees have registered there so far. This registration has brought in some level of accountability, according to Shubrajyoti Bhomik, the Clinical Director for Clinical Research, Academics and Patient Safety at Peerless Hospital at Kolkata. I have been associated with clinical trials for now over 13 years. So I will tell you, pre-2013 and post-2013 scenario, pre-2013 it was, you know, people would just make, uh, I would say, just have the ethics committee for the namesake. But right now, you have to have specific people doing specific jobs as per the regulations are concerned so that the registration can happen. Because if the uh, if the DCGI is not happy, the Drug Controller General's Office is not happy with the role which is being suggested, then they ask for clarification and sometimes they will not approve the registration. So uh, it's, it's a regulatory approval. It's like a license to run the ethics committee. But rules are only as strong as their implementation. And an ethics committee is only as good as its members. Let's look at a few examples. First, to register with the CDSCO, each committee must submit details of all members, including certificates that show that every member has gone through training of good clinical practices, or GCP in short. These practices 
are a set of ethical and scientific standards that you must adhere to when conducting a trial. But again, that doesn't mean that that person is actually trained. Because I have seen many times that people, because they're elderly, you know, in the ethics committees, most people like me, they are old people, like 60, retired, post-retired, etc. And uh, it's only these people who have time to sit on ethics committees. So they sit on ethics committees and they don't want to get trained because, come on, I'm now too old. I know everything. That sort of attitude is there, which, which means somebody else has given that exam online and uh, submitted a certificate, which is very wrong. If you're sitting on an ethics committee, you shouldn't be doing this, but it can happen. And therefore, I really don't know how this can be changed because, and this therefore, according to me, it really depends on the internal milieu of that person who's sitting on that ethics committee. Is that person ethical or not? It all boils down to that. And there is no way you can judge this in, an, in a member who is newly joined an ethics committee. Second, an ethics committee must ideally verify whether the investigators selected by the sponsor to carry out the study are actually qualified to do so. So, is the investigator trained in good clinical practices? Does her field of expertise match the requirements of the study? Thatte says this scrutiny of investigators is uncommon. We, at least at KM, we insist on a every three-year renewal of the GCP training by the PI. In fact, there was a case where one of our PIs, uh, we had to disqualify that person from doing any research studies because they had done major problems in one of the trials, which was a regulatory study. And they had a problem with that. Uh, we had a problem with that person. We had banned that person from uh, doing any research for the next six months until you get definitely trained in GCP and not some student doing the GCP training. So we had insisted on doing that. So we've done that in the past. We have disqualified one PI. And we have to do these things. Third, to register, ethics committees must also submit their standard operating procedure. This document details step-by-step -step guidelines on the processes that a committee must follow while approving, rejecting and monitoring a study. A good SOP helps a committee perform diligently and similarly every time. Many committees, Thati says, don't have their own SOPs and even if they have one, there's no guarantee that the SOPs are being followed. So, therefore, having SOPs is meaningless. Do you follow that those SOPs or not is more important. And for that, you need some kind of inspection. Somebody has to go to, to ethics committees and check whether you are actually following all these SOPs or not. Adding to this problem is the fact that most ethics committees in India monitor trials passively. This means that once a trial starts, the committee simply reviews documents that the principal investigator sends across to them from time to time. The document might have details such as all the adverse events or side effects that have occurred so far or how many people withdrew from the trials. But this information alone isn't enough to catch violations. For that, visiting the hospital where the trial is going on is crucial. However, active on-site monitoring is not mandatory in India. 
even then some ethics committees have gone ahead and gotten voluntary accreditation from agencies like the National Accreditation Board for Hospitals and Healthcare Providers or NABH in India. In order to be accredited, the committees have to follow stricter standards than what registration lays out. The committees are also regularly audited and they're expected to compulsorily carry out on-site monitoring of all regulatory trials. The Institutional Ethics Committees of KEM Hospital Mumbai, of which Thatte is a member, has NABH accreditation. The committee has been carrying out on-site monitoring since November 2008. These visits have revealed lots of protocol violations as well as problems with the informed consent process that would, perhaps, have otherwise gone undetected and uncorrected. When we do on-site monitoring, you find so many problems. For example, the consent forms sometimes are totally wrongly filled or they are signed. They, there, are, there is a thumb impression for the witness also. The witness can't be illiterate. The witness has to be literate. If it's not a literate witness, then that whole witnessing is irrelevant. So, so we found that also. Sometimes uh, the, uh, the patient patient has signed, but the date is written by the doctor in a different ink. So that is not on. The patient has to write. If the patient is illiterate and has put a thumb, then the date has to be written by the witness. There are so many rules. Everything is taught to them during GCP. But none of them, they don't remember this or some junior person is doing this. Then there's one place I had gone to for monitoring recently and I found there was no narratives at all. The consent narrative, Thatte says, is a detailed written story about how the consent was taken from the participant. What information did the doctor give to the patient? What questions did the patient ask? What answers did the doctor give in return? What language was the participant comfortable in while reading the consent form and signing it? Everything has to be recorded. So this narrative gives you all the details. It gives you the time that it took to do the consent. For example, somebody may consent in five minutes. That is not allowed. Means That means you didn't at all do the consent in the proper way. It takes at least 45 minutes for a good consent to take place for the patient to understand what he's going through that he's having some risks is he willing to take these risks that the most important thing being that this is a research project that is something that the patient doesn't understand only that is something that you have to as a PI spend time on explaining to the patient so all these things you can catch when you go at on site and do the actual monitoring Lack of on-site monitoring is one reason why ethical violations persist. In Bhopal, for example, several irregularities emerged in how hundreds of people who were also gas tragedy victims were recruited for Bharat Biotech's co-vaccine trial at People's Hospital. We have done a detailed podcast on this Bhopal trial site. The link will be in the show notes. In this particular trial site, the informed consent process reportedly had many problems as did the participants' follow-up for side effects. I would say that it's a very unfortunate event if it has happened because it should not happen. And being a researcher myself, again, you know, clinical researcher and an ethics committee member, I 
I really condemn this kind of an activity if it has happened. But having said that, we also have to understand that the major uh, here one of the important roles is of the ethics committee. Then I was mentioning, you know, the on-site monitoring. The on had the ethics committee did the on-site monitoring, then these issues could have been taken care of. But unfortunately, the on-site monitoring is not a requirement by the DCGI's registration requirement. Bhan adds, there's also a need for more public education so that participants understand their rights. For instance, every informed consent form must have the contact number of the member secretary of the ethics committee. In case the participant has a grievance, say against the investigator or the conduct of the trial, she can contact that member secretary. But both Thatte and Bhan say they've rarely heard of patients reaching out this way. Yeah, so I don't think I've heard of instances where that happens. Uh, but that, again, I think uh, perhaps reflects that maybe we need to be educating participants more around this being a potential mechanism for them. Um, it's great if there are actually no issues which participants have with the trial conduct, but that seems unlikely for uh, the volume of research which happens in this country. And I think that mechanism needs to be more uh, well uh, communicated, but perhaps there should be some proactive engagement where uh, the ethics committee also takes on a monitoring role. A good ethics committee is key to a good clinical trial. A good clinical trial in turn means that you and I can probably have greater confidence in how the study might have been designed and conducted and so greater trust in the medicine that's been approved based on that trial. So, how do we get there? One step towards improving trust, Bhan says, is greater transparency. Not just in how sponsors and the drug regulator functions, but also in how ethics committees work. Furthermore, I think to build public trust, I think uh, all of this information around who, what is the membership of the ethics committee, what are the standard operating procedures, uh, you know, all of that should be on a public platform like the institutional website so that it's easy for the public to know who are the members of the ethics committee, what are their, uh, you know, uh, standard operating procedures which they follow when they conduct their meetings, um, how frequently do they meet, um, you know, any accreditation or registration which has happened. There is no reason to hide any of this information. Um, in fact, I think they should be more transparently available because it also tells you, just as it will tell you about other committees at the institution, that this is also a committee which is important to the institution and information about that is being publicly shared. There are examples of committees that operate transparently and have well-laid out procedures that catch errors and provide opportunities for them to be corrected. Whether these good practices will become more common, however, remains to be seen. And I think all of us uh, need to support more research happening within the country, uh, especially that which has public health, social value, etc. And uh, hopefully, you know, if we keep looking at some of these uh, issues and trying to find out solutions, that will mean that we are able to promote a more, um, you know, well-rounded, ethical uh, research uh, ecosystem with uh, with good practices ingrained in it. And I think that quality improvement is something which is crucial and hopefully we'll uh, see more on uh, happening on that. 
Please rate our podcast and leave a comment if you like it. Underreported and underrepresented stories can become mainstream only if it reaches more people. So please support us by visiting our contributing page on our website sunoindia.in or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.